Podcast is always one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't, today is Friday, Friday, Friday. It's September twentieth, two thousand thirteen. This is episode twelve eleven of the Survival Podcast. And since it's Friday, 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 it's time for your calls to the Think Line eight six six sixty five Think again eight six 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 five T H I N K. You're probably if you're one of the people that get the show as soon as it comes out, listening a bit later today than normal. Uh, I'll tell you why. As part of the intro segment, it's not a bad thing. It's a very very good thing. This this stuff that I've forgotten what it's like called rain is here. It's raining, and it's not raining a little bit. It's raining a lot. More accurately. It's raining a little bit over a very long period of time. We get steady rain, misting rain, dripping rain, sprinkling rain by steady rain, and back and forth like that. Just slow, steady rain. And it's been happening since last night, and it is a godsend to the area because our grass was so dry it was going to take one match to start grass fires everywhere, and we all know how that ends poorly. And uh, it's great for the uh, pastures, it's great for the plants, it's great for everything. And it's great for me because we just finally got our water catchment system put in. So I've got a 1,500-gallon uh, tank filling up right now. And I've been multiple times this morning running out there and looking into it like a little kid at Christmas time, watching my rainwater collect. It's amazing how simple things can make you happy. So that kind of goes part and parcel with my show yesterday about the steps we've taken backward. Uh, today we see a big step forward. Also, you guys come into the Urban Design uh, course. It's full now. But I've got some interesting intel from this rain. I went out and took a look at where the rain's puddling in the area, and there happens to be a huge source of water draining into that area, but getting it to go to the whole area might be difficult, so uh, intel for the uh, urban design thing. Everybody that's registered, you guys are now booked, uh, booked and, and locked in. Uh, look for a document today or tomorrow coming out to you with group rate for those of you staying in hotels, uh, address locations, and things like that. I'll say this again uh, because I know a lot of you guys that are coming haven't done this. It would be so awesome if everybody coming to this event would just break down whatever barrier it is keeping you from doing it and join the Yahoo email list that's in the document that you got when you signed up. It will help you be informed about things that I may not get an email out to everybody on. Um, since it's there, you can go check it if you wonder if anything's been going on and maybe your spam filter ate something. Um, it'll be redundancy with the documents that we have, uh, the documents that we have uh, put together will be there so you can download them pictures there, things like that. So I, I, I don't know. It seems like some people just hate Yahoo groups or something. I it's it's for this one thing and when it's over, if you don't like it, you can leave the group. They don't spam you or anything like that, I I promise. Anyway, um let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping so I can get to your calls. Housekeeping item of the day number one. Let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Sponsor today number one today, JM Bullion. Uh, they're a great source of silver, guys. I know I sell silver with Mulligan Mint through TSP Mint, uh, and I want you to buy silver for me, and I want you to buy paradigms from Rob and things like that. But let me tell you a true story. Yesterday I got an email from someone that said, I'm looking to buy a sizable amount of silver, a, a significant amount, and I just don't feel comfortable buying from Mulligan right now, which you know I could have given them a billion reasons not to feel that way about, but... 
he said, I, where should I go to buy my silver if I'm not going to buy it from Mulligan Mint? I sent the following response, J.M. Bullion. That was the entire response. Uh, because I'm very confident that I found an incredible supplier of American Silver Eagles and generic silver rounds and pre-64 uh, uh, silver and things like that uh, in Jam Bullion. I've had no complaints about them. They've done a great job. Uh, a few hiccups here and there when I've gotten in touch with them. They've squirted away right away. Great place to buy your silver, jambullion.com. Next up today, Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason. What are you going to get from the Berkey guy? As shocking as it might be, you're going to get Berkey water filtration systems from the Berkey guy and a lot of other great things for your prepping needs as well. But why get your Berkey from the Berkey guy? A Berkey is a Berkey, right? A Berkey is a Berkey. There's no doubt about that. But you'll pay less and get better service with Jeff. I say that confidently because the man is a fanatic about customer service. I mean, it's hard for me to even understand, and I'm pretty fanatical about it, how anybody can be as dedicated as Jeff is. So don't be your guy that got your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy. Get it from the Berkey guy, because you can, because he's a supporter of our show and has been now for about four years. Check him out at directive21.com, the website directive21.com. Best way to visit Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason, J.M. Bullion, and all our sponsors would be go to the survivalpodcast.com first, and click on their banners in the right-hand margin. Okay, uh, next up, want to remind you guys about 13 Skills. I just updated my status over there on some new stuff that I'm doing, including some stuff with some more knives that some local lo lucky folks will walk away with from the event that we're about to have here uh, this, uh, this fine October that I just talked about. Uh, I'd love to see what you're doing. You can now comment and, and uh, on each other's status and interact with each other. We're working to make it where you'll get an email notice. I think that's a very important step forward. But we've done a lot with 13 Skills. Love to have you over there. And remember, if you're doing blog posts about your 13 Skills updates, send your blog post to skillsgirl at 13skills.com. Skillgirl at 13skills.com. Not skills, skill girl, singular. Skill girl at 13skills.com. That's Dorothy. Uh, just send her a link to your blog post and tell her, hey, I'm working on my 13 skills. This is a blog post about one of the things I've done. We'll feature you on the 13 skills blog if you'll do that. Again, send that email to skillgirl at 13skills.com. And 13skills is 13skills.com, not the number 13 spelled out. Though we should probably buy that domain and redirect it there, just so people aren't confused. Anyway, last but not least, consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. Help support the show at a whopping 18.3 cents an episode. Before I take your first call, let's do our history segment, episode 1211. So we're going to look at the year 1211. Not a lot going on with names you would know, but... Uh, Seems like John of England has done something every year since he's taken the throne a few years back from his brother Richard the Lionheart. Uh, remember, he has recently been excommunicated by the Pope, Pope Innocent III. And again, I say any guy that uses the name Innocent in his name is probably guilty of something. Um, John of England sends a gift of herrings to the nunneries in almost every shire despite his status as an excommunicant. So we continue to see John do things that are like benevolent toward the churches and monasteries and nunneries and things like that. Um, you know why? Do you think he's trying to uh, to atone for his sins? You think John's going to have himself killed at the end of his life? You know, to atone for his sins, like the the guy we talked about the other day or anything? No. Um, John, the King of England, knows that full well the churches, monasteries, nunneries, convents as a whole are integral to the infrastructure of his kingdom, and that they're necessary. And he will support them because they are a part of the infrastructure of the nation, the kingdom of England. 
So that, that's why he's doing these things. It's his biggest reason anyway. Uh, in other news uh, from the year 1211, Mongol forces under Genghis Khan invade Jin, China, aiming at this stage simply to loot the countryside. The Chinese army is defeated and slaughtered at Badger's Mount campaign near Zhangjiakou and another beaten at Mukden where the city is taken. Beijing is also besieged by the Mongol hordes. So at this point, early on in the, the rise of uh, Genghis Khan and, and the, uh, the Khan, uh, the Genghis Empire, um, they're simply beginning to move into China. But the hordes are beginning to mass, and they will soon. Well, it'll be a little while in a true history, but as quick as we're moving year to year, soon begin moving to the east while nobody pays attention. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Uh, those in power use whatever apparatus they need to maintain power, and often people that are should be minding the store are not paying attention when danger mounts, regardless of whether it comes from the east or the west. Anyway, with that, let's get into your first call on today's show. I do have no calls from the expert panel today, uh, but I want to lead off with uh, a call for calls. Um, I love Stephen Harris, but Stephen doesn't need any calls this week. He really doesn't. Um, he's got plenty. He's got an inventory of calls to work through. Um, but because of some stuff he was working on this week, he didn't get any done this week. So I'm not saying note call for Stephen. I'm just saying he doesn't really need any. We need calls for our other people, folks. If you go take a look at the list and see if you can figure out a question for him, I'd love to do an episode where every member of the council would answer at least one question. And with that, I want to announce formally, Carrie Davis of Dark Angel Medical has joined the council uh, covering emergency medicine and life-saving care. Brian Black, of course, just recently joined the council from ITS Tactical, all things tactical, escape and evasion, lock picking, you name it. Uh, Brian is the guy. Frank Sharp Jr., a fortress defense consultant, specifically on weapons, tactics, and security. Firearms training questions would really be great for Frank, since he is a firearms training instructor. Darby Simpson on livestock and farm management, homestead consulting. Ben Falk on permaculture, specializing specifically in northeastern climates. Paul Wheaton, permies.com, specializing in northwestern climates. But both Ben and Paul can answer generic permaculture questions as well. Tim Glantz on Old Grouch's Military sub Surplus, anything with your bug-out vehicles, military surplus questions, and communications like ham, CB, stuff like that. Stephen Harris, All Things Energy, and Chef Keith Snow on cooking. Man, if I could get you guys to rally the troops and try to you know, pick somebody we haven't heard from from a while, or our new guys. Brian and Kerry, I'd love a question for both of them next week. Frank, we hear from him on occasion. Love a question for Frank Darby. Again, an on-occasion thing. Paul and Ben, tons of permaculture questions out there. You know, I might just pick some and send them to them. Tim Glantz, though, we haven't had a lot of questions for Tim, and he's a great guy. Uh, and Chef Keith Snow, man, he's going to make you hungry. But, boy, if you got a cooking question, let's get those in this week. Again, the number, 866-65-THINK, 866-658-4465. Let's go ahead and take that first call now. Hey, Jack, it's Tommy from Grapevine, Texas. I just watched your update on your aquaculture project. Uh, would it be possible to incorporate a micro-hydro system or multiple systems and generate enough power to run the single low-draw pump or maybe even produce a surplus? Uh, my theory is that it would be a net loss in energy overall, but still uh, reduce the total electricity pulled from the grid. Um, is setting up a system like that even worth the hassle for just saving a few dollars a year? Um, if it was cheap enough, you know, I'd probably do it for the education experience alone might be a great thing to hear from Steve Harris about this one. 
thanks for the show. Now, the basic laws of thermodynamics, especially in the size of a setup that I'm running and with the, the, the small amount of fall that there is there, would tell you that uh, that's not going to work. It's just going to be an energy loss, and it, it probably wouldn't in any way be worth like trying to recapture any portion of the energy. I guess what you could do that might be useful would be something like this. Um, and, and my system probably wouldn't do this, but the right system with enough capacity and enough fall, you may be able to do something like set up a micro-hydro that charges a 12-volt battery, and that 12-volt battery provides redundant backup power. It, it, it's probably not even worth considering doing this for the purpose of powering the system itself. Where it might be interesting... Right, And I'm going to talk about how this is done where it actually works, um, like what Sepp Holter does, but why it works for him. Um, but where this, this would actually be possibly beneficial would be, let's say we set up two batteries. Let's say we had enough flow from the water, just the gravity feedback down to turn a, a small power wheel. Let's say that power wheel can do enough to charge the batteries. The batteries then become backup power for the pump. So the system provides its own backup power. It, it, it's complicated, though, and it's probably not worth it. But I guess you could do that. But you would probably be better suited to get it and build yourself a simple backup system since you know you have grid power there anyway that you're running the pump from and use a, a good charger maintainer the way Steve Harris would teach us. Uh, and it would be less expensive and, and more useful and more functional. But the energy is being expended anyway. So that would be the one place where maybe, and you would teach yourself how to do it. Now, the reality is, with the size of the system I'm doing, the very small amount of fall in it, and the small capacity of water that I'm actually allowing to recirculate, it's not sufficient to do much of anything other than maybe, I don't know, you could probably run like a flashlight light bulb or something like that. And it just isn't really worth it other than maybe it would be a fun educational experience. Now, how does someone like Sepp Holzer manage to do these things? Well, he's on a freaking mountain, right? And he has all these ponds on different levels. And those ponds are holding a lot of water that's not necessarily pumped up from the bottom, but caught from catchment coming down from the top. So he's able to push that water all over the place using gravity And my understanding is he produces 100% of the electricity that they use from microhydro. And on a large system like that with enough fall, that type of thing most certainly can work and would be very advantageous to do. But on flat land where the water movement is being done almost 100% by a pump, not so much. Now, how could you make it work? Well... You could take a windmill to pump the water and use the water gravity fall to make electricity if you did it in sufficient quantity. Let's say you had a big pond at the bottom of a, a piece of land and a larger pond, at, another pond at the top, and you were using the windmill to pump water and then letting the water flow back down, some sort of a man-made stream. You could do that, and it would produce quite a bit of energy, but it's really not hydroelectric energy then. It's really wind energy being converted to, to hydraulic energy being converted to electric energy where if you wanted the water to flow anyway, that might make sense. But of course, it's only going to work when the wind is blowing. But that's true of most renewables. They only work when certain things are going on. The, the ideal way to harness hydro energy is from a natural flow because that 
then is tr probably the best alternative energy source you could ever have. So one thing that would be extremely advantageous is if you had water running through a property where you were uh, able to harness that. That That's the way you would really want to do microhydro. Uh, let's take another question. Hey, Jack. Mitch from Portland. Uh, can I chop and drop my tomato plants? Uh, they are healthy or seemingly healthy. Haven't had any uh, real issues with the fruiting. Um, I have a lot of material from them, and I hate to think that I can't, uh, you know, put it straight back into compost or just drop it straight back down on the ground. Um, haven't really been able to find anything about this online. A lot of people seem to think that I'm going to be introducing a lot of diseases into my garden, but if the plants are otherwise healthy, doesn't seem like that should be that big of an issue to me. So uh, what say you? Can I chop and drop my tomato plants? Thanks a lot. You can, and what people are saying is true and false, and I'll explain what I mean. If you're growing a whole lot of tomatoes in one area, and you're growing those tomatoes there and nothing else, and next year you're going to plant your tomatoes in the same place, if there's small amounts of p tomato pests and tomato disease things and stuff like that there, next year there'll probably be more, and then the next year there'll be more, and then the next year there'll be more. And over time, you, you're giving yourself a setup to have some problems with um, tomato-borne illnesses and or pests, which is true, which is why modern agriculture, at least in theory, practices crop rotation to minimize that. So when the, uh, the particular thing that is a detrimental uh, thing to a tomato pops up, uh, it's looking at something like a carrot. And it's like, that's not really what I want. And it's confused, and it's more likely to go elsewhere or be predated upon because it's not just able to just move into its new digs, right? So that, that's the theory, and that's why people are advising you that, and they're not entirely wrong. If you're in a polyculture environment, it's nowhere near as big a deal because you have a great, greater deal of interaction, of health, and things like that. So you could chop and drop it. Now, how could you do this if you were going to plant your tomatoes in the same spot, and that's primarily a tomato spot? Chop your tomatoes and drop them over where you grow your carrots and take your carrot tops and drop them over where you grow your tomatoes would be one way to do that. But if you're growing good, healthy plants, I wouldn't sweat it very much. Now, if you have any kind of blight on tomatoes, I would get that the hell out of there. Um, but otherwise, I, I wouldn't worry about it. And let's talk about why. So way back before we were genius enough to figure out how to make tomatoes red, and they were mostly yellowish to orangish, and they grew in, yes, deserts, which is a tomato natively is a desert plant. It grew all by itself, and it wasn't quite as delicious and luscious as the tomatoes we grow today, but it was, it was pretty cool, and you could eat it. It was good to eat, and no one took care of it. How did a tomato grow in the desert? Well, it grew. And the vines grew out and sprawled. They Nobody went out and staked it up, right? And tomato vine won't really climb very well. It'll climb a little bit, but it won't, like, climb up a pole. It'll climb, like, if something, like, a blowdown, it'll, like, grow over top of it, but it won't, doesn't have a lot of tendrils or anything like that. So it's mostly a, a sprawling vine. So then what happens? Well, the end of the year comes, and whatever, you know, tomatoes aren't eaten or anything, they rot and they ferment, and the seeds get ready to grow again, and they fall right to the ground underneath the existing tomato vines, and then some of them grow next year, and they either continue to grow outward or grow back, depending on what's available to them. 
So in nature, tomatoes produce by dropping and rotting. And the whole vine just dies and the plant grows up on top of its previous year's growth. So if nature does, we can too. And a lot of people that are concerned with things like spreading, you know, disease and pests and things and recommend crop rotation, they're not incorrect. They're just not growing things the way that we generally do in the permaculture space. They have, you know, a, a four foot by 12 foot bed that grows nothing but tomatoes every single year. And then they have another four foot by 12 foot bed that grows nothing but peppers every single year. And they're using conventional techniques and conventional things, and uh, they tend to actually do have a problem with building up pests. Um, but that said, it doesn't necessarily have to be the case either. My grandfather was pretty conventional as an organic gardener, though we didn't call it organic. It's just what we did. And we grew our peppers and our tomatoes in the same bed every year. And while I have to say we didn't, did we, chop, we didn't chop and drop, But we didn't chop and take away. We were chopping and dropping without thinking about it. You know, I would just go down every year and pull the sticks up, and everything would just lay there in a tangle, and uh, the snow would come and cover it all up, and then next year we would we would turn everything in. So we were letting the plant just go to the ground the way it would in nature. Because once I pull that stake out that we used to stake our tomatoes, where's it going to go? It goes to the ground. Um, it's probably better... For breakdown, to, to take a pair of snips or something and chop it into smaller pieces. Most uh, permacultures that work small space permaculture, zone one permaculture, when they chop and drop, they you know it's not like zone three forestry or zone four forestry chop and drop where you chop the whole piece of tree and just let the whole thing go to the ground, chop it into smaller pieces. I wouldn't hesitate to do it. I would keep an eye on things, and if you start to develop problems, maybe change that in the future. Observe and interact. Good question. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Darren, longtime listener and contributor on the forums. My question is regarding the economics of propane versus electricity and also the safety record of propane. We recently voted with our feet. We moved out of Colorado to Missouri on a house on 10 acres. The house only has electricity for heating. Now, while shopping for a house, I asked several contractors and realtors, why are so many homes in this you know, what I call the ice storm capital of the Midwest, why do they all rely solely on electricity and not, you know, propane? All of them told me that gas is more expensive. Personally, I don't care. I want a backup heat source for my family. I'll probably install a gas or a propane fireplace insert as a redundant heat source, regardless of the economics. However, over time, I might also convert our kitchen range or our clothes dryer to propane as those appliances age. But I've got a challenge. How do you help a lovely wife who, you know, she's afraid to cook on gas? Um, I call her a teacup, but don't tell her I said that. Um, so fast forward a few months, you know, I got a couple of bills in the mail. My electric rates are tiered. The first 500 kilowatts are $0.09, cents, and everything after that is $0.07. Cents. I called a few local propane companies. Rates average $1.51 per gallon right now. So assuming rates are the same, would propane be more cost-effective than electricity? How could I calculate this myself? Comparing and contrasting the BTUs of propane with the energy of a kilowatt hour seems like something only our good buddy Stephen Harris could do in his sleep. I appreciate everything you and your expert panel members do to produce a good and lively forum and a good show. 
Thanks a lot, and I look forward to your answer. Well, I'm going to take that one myself because mainly what you said in the beginning, if it's a little more expensive, you don't care. So getting down and calculating BTUs in that equation when you're going to be splitting hairs really isn't worth doing. I can tell you this. The most expensive way to heat a home is with electricity. Let me say it again. The most expensive way to heat a home is with electricity, especially if it's electric space heaters. Um, if you're going to, it doesn't even matter what you're paying, you know, for electricity unless you're getting it for free. If you have electric space heat, um, you're, you're, you're going to have a high electric bill. Uh, they're extremely inefficient, and there's a lot of things not to like about it. If you have a a, um, a heating system that is central air, central heat, um, your cost is going to be similar. And I'm not even going to bother with calculating BTUs, but I'm going to tell you, you know, at a buck fifty a gallon for propane, propane is a very efficient source of heat, especially if you're using the exact antithesis of a electrical space heater, kind of propane space heat, uh, where you have heaters that are plumbed individually so you can heat a room or a zone of the house. And instead of buying a whole new uh, central air system, if you have central heat and central air, I would advise you instead to leave the central heat and central air in place and bring in zoned propane heat as a secondary heat. So now you got two is one, one is none. So the electric heat's there if you need to heat the whole house. If you're just a little bit cold in one room, now we can bring that zone in. Plus, if the power goes out, These things work without electricity, right? As long as you don't get something that don't get something that requires electricity to run your propane through, get something that runs on the propane itself, and they are very efficient. Your idea for a propane fireplace insert, very, very, very good. Now, as to the teacup wife, um, it's time to accept the fact that we've been using gas for a very long time, and people don't die every day from it. It's it's all but unheard of, okay? It really is. If you have propane gas leaking in your home, you will know it because they put stink in it so you'll smell it. And it's very distinctive and it's almost immediate if there's, and you're not going to generally have leaks if you have it professionally plumbed. So you get a professional plumber to put in your, 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 your propane plumbing. You pay the money and then you go on about your business as far as being afraid to cook with it. Your wife, man, you got to solve that problem. But here's my response. Every professional chef in the world is cooking on gas, unless they're doing something novel like cooking over coals, right? There isn't a professional chef out there that's like, you know what, when I set my kitchen up, I'm setting it up with electric heat. It's used in every, if she's ever been to a restaurant, they've been cooking with gas all around her. 90% probably, I can't prove this, I'm making it up out of my ass, let's call it 80% of people that are grilling today are grilling on propane grills. It's extremely efficient, it's extremely safe, it's far cleaner than, you know, you know as far as fuels, gas is cleaner than oil. Gas is cleaner than just about anything when you're burning a fossil fuel. It's cleaner than wood, as far as I'm concerned anyway. So... I think it's clean, I think it's safe, I think it's efficient, and I think the biggest thing is it's self-sufficient. It's it's actually more self-reliant. Remember, self-sufficiency means I don't need anything from the outside world. Self-reliant means I can go for a time without anything from the outside world. So we remember, we, we measure self-sufficiency 
in a percentage. If I produce 30% of my own food with no outside inputs, right? If, if everything went away, I could still do that. I'm 30% self-sufficient with food. But if I have a one-month food supply in a pantry that I can't replenish, but it's there, I'm one-month self-reliant with food, right? Well, you put in a 500 to 1,000-gallon propane tank, yeah, it costs you know, 1,500 bucks to fill up a 1,000-gallon propane tank, but you've got a huge self-reliant time frame now of being able to heat your home and cook your food. And I think it's one of the smartest moves that can be made. You can even get small refrigerators that will run on propane. And if you're worried about having a way to keep things cool during a power outage, having one of them ain't a bad idea either. Um, I recently suggested to somebody that said, well, how can I get one of those cheap? I said, you know what, here's an idea for you. You guys think about this idea. I have seen busted-to-shit travel trailers all over the place. I'm talking stuff that's like one step away from a tree growing through it, something you'd never want to own. And guess what? The person with it probably don't want to own it either. If it's sufficiently roadworthy that it could be towed to a scrapyard, you may be able to get it for taking it away. Then you could go in, and most of them have a refrigerator and a little freezer in them that run on propane. You could rip that out and maybe find some other stuff you could harvest from it, harvest those materials, put them away, and do something with them later, and then drag what's left of it to a scrapyard and sell it for scrap metal for probably about 20 bucks. Just saying, that's one idea I had for people that are trying to get a low-cost propane refrigerator, because um, most of those little RVs and stuff have one. So it's just a thought. Anyway, let's go ahead and take another question. But again, with your wife... Every professional chef in the world is cooking on gas for a reason. It does a better job. If you cook on gas, you will never want to use electricity ever again. And if it wasn't safe, you wouldn't be able to walk into any major appliance store in the country and buy one. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Christina in California. I have a question in regards to walking to freedom and health care. How does one find health care coverage when moving to a new state? I have had health care coverage my entire life from one government agency or another, first from the federal government and then the military, and now I have a state government job. So I've always been spoiled and had high-end health care. We would like to leave California and move to a freer state, but the one thing holding us back is access to health care. We have enough financial means to get housing and provide the necessities of life in a new location, but we have no idea how to get health care on our own. We probably won't be able to find jobs with health care in a new state, so how do people like you who are self-employed or work part-time or work for an employer with no health care provide it for your families? I've tried to do some research online, but it's very confusing, and it's all in upheaval because of the implementation of Obamacare. So what would you say to those of us who are trying to walk to freedom but are worried about health care for our families? Thanks for everything. Uh, I'm start off, and I don't want you to take this the wrong way, but I think your perception is just absolutely backwards. I... I, I, I'm really wondering what has you thinking, let's say if you move to Texas or Florida or 
I don't know, uh, Wyoming or whatever, and you got a job there that it would not come with health care. I mean, you might have to pay for a portion of it if you're not taking another job living off of government you know, employment. Uh, when I had uh, my company with, with Neil Franklin, our employees, I think, on a family health care plan, the company paid for about 80% of the cost of the premiums, and they paid for 20%. So I and I don't know how Obamacare is going to affect that. I'll tell you what we do in a second. But all I'm saying is, most jobs with any sizable employer in almost every state come with some level of access to healthcare. It may not be 100% provided to you, and it may not be the Cadillac plan that you get right now. But you'll have it. The good news is, is it's not a Cadillac plan. It won't be taxed as income in a couple of years. Because yeah. By the way, your Cadillac insurance plan that you're so happy that you have right now, it's going to get taxed as income a few years down the line as part of Obamacare. So you're about to start paying taxes on that fancy health care plan. So um, just one thing to consider. Now, what do we do? Well, we have our pr a plan with a very high deductible, I think seven or $9,000, that only covers catastrophic needs. And then if I have to go to the doctor because I have the flu and the doctor says the bill's like $90, I pay it. And it goes against my deductible. That's it. My wife recently had an illness. She had to have some testing and all. It was several hundred dollars worth. We paid it. Now, why do we pay it versus pay more for insurance that would have covered it all? Because it costs less to do that than to have the Cadillac insurance plan. So, and, and many self-employed people do this. You set up a high deductible catastrophic plan. If I get cancer, a heart attack, whatever, it's not going to bankrupt me and they're going to care for me. But if I need, you know, ongoing maintenance medication, I'll pay for it. Up until the point where it costs me less to get it than buy the insurance, which is part of why insurance is such a messed up program today. Because what we expect of it is that every time we sneeze or cough or at chew or skin our knee, that we're going to be covered with everything except a $10 copay or something like that. And plans like that were everywhere just about 20 years ago. What happened to them? The government got involved. Plus, they were unsustainable. It was unreasonable that that type of insurance would stay around forever. About the, the place where the problem is, is the person that needs a, a very expensive maintenance medication or something like that. And that you have to get very specific with. But when you move and you pick up new insurance, what you do is you, you pick it up uh, as you move. And whatever you had as a pre-existing condition can't be held against you when you move over because you, you're taking existing coverage and moving over. If you lapse the coverage that pre-existing condition becomes a problem. And what you may find is even though you are a state employee of the state of California, your insurance may be by Aetna or you know Blue Cross or something. Odds are the state you move to will have the same provider, and they will lie to you. They will tell you you can't just get it or you have to reapply. But if you, if you force the issue, they just basically have to transfer it. Now, you might be the one paying the bill, But you can do it, and you can call and get that answer. The big thing to do, though, would be go to the Walking to Freedom Forum, to the state you're thinking of moving to, and say, hey, guys that live here in the great state of Georgia, what type of health insurance do you have? Where do you work? What do they provide? What do they not provide? Those of you that are self-employed, ask the people living there what they have. 
I can tell you that in the state of Texas, our insurance, I believe, and I'll ask right now to clarify, I believe it went down when we left Arkansas. Yeah, I just confirmed that with Dorothy. You want to pause there. Our insurance cost did go down a little bit between Arkansas and Texas. So we're paying less for the equivalent plan here in Texas. But they did give us crap about it. They're like, well, you got to reapply. you got to do this. And we're like, hey, no, we don't. We already have insurance. We're an existing customer of your company in another state. We're just transferring our coverage to your state. And eventually they're like, because they wanted like to do physicals and crap. Like They're like, no, no, no. You don't get to do crap. We're already your customer. But that had to be force-fed down the throat of the person on the phone. So it, that was different, though, because I'm self-employed, buying my own policy, moving, continuing to buy my own policy from the same company. Had we decided we wanted to go a different way with a different company, say move from Aetna to Blue Cross or from Blue Cross to Concentra or something like that, then it doesn't work quite as smoothly. But they do have to acknowledge you have existing coverage. And it's one of the good things in Obamacare that they can't jerk you around like that, but only if you know to invoke your right to get a new policy. Right? That's one of the few good things there. Now, here's the other thing. Under Obamacare, employers over uh, 50 employees, I believe it is, are forced to give you health care if you're a full-time employee. So assuming you're going to get a full-time job, right, you're going to probably have the option of health care in some way. Again, you might have to pay for some of it, but it, does, it means it will be there and available to you. And if you're looking for a job in a new state, it's one of the pre-employment questions you ask. I mean, I know you're used to working for the government where they just tell you everything you're getting, but when you work in the private sector, you negotiate things. Do you provide health care? Really? How much? What, you know, I mean, and, and that's part of your job search. Employer A offers rate, you know, an employment rate of X, but full coverage. And employer Y pays, you know, a little bit less or a little bit more, but offers partial coverage, and you have to pay part of the bill. How do you work out ahead? You have to start actually, you know, using market forces to make your decisions. But our simple answer for us is we make sure that if we have cancer, a heart attack, a car accident, something like that. The majority of the cost of that care is covered, and we pay out of pocket for everything else. There's also the ability to do health care savings accounts, which when we moved it, for some reason we didn't get that set up, and we probably need to figure out how to do that again, where basically you have money that you put pre-tax dollars into an account, and you have a debit card, and you can pay your medical expenses with that card. We had that before. I'm not sure why we don't have it now. I'm glad you asked the question and made me think of it. But what that does is it builds up. And eventually, when you are at retirement age, if you haven't used money you've put in there, you can kind of handle it the same way you do an IRA or a 401k. You can take the money back with no interest or penalties, or you can leave it there and continue to use it to pay for medical expenses. It doesn't earn a rate of return for you the way that a 401 or an IRA does, but it's not gone. It's not like... The, the, I can't remember the program, but there was a program, cafeteria or something like that, where you put money in it at work, and if you don't use it, you lose it. So a lot of people didn't use it because they weren't sure. The only people that used it were people that had fixed expenses in medicine that knew, I'm going to use at least 50 bucks a month, so I'll put 50 in there. And if, cause, you know, this other program, you have a lot more control of how you spend that money. And, uh, I'll, I'll just leave it at that. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Brandon with LibertyBudget.com. Um, I'm calling because I uh, listened to episode 1193, and you're talking about uh, paleo and uh, getting the fat in your diet. And my question is, how do um, I know if I'm getting enough fat 
or is it, is it possible to get too much fat in my diet? And uh, what are some indicators uh, for either condition? All right, thanks a lot for the show. Uh, all right, keep up the good work. Thanks. Well, the truth is if you're eating a lot of meat and a variety of meat, so when you're eating chicken, you're not just eating skinless, boneless white meat. You're eating, you know, cook with the bone, cook with the cartilage intact, cook with the skin on, cook the dark meat, eat the dark meat too. And you're getting some other, you know, some, maybe some organ meats into your diet and things like that. When you're eating steak, you're not trimming all the fat off and things like that. You're eating, you know, some, maybe some brisket once in a while, stuff that you can see fat in. You're not going to be deficient in fat. Um, it might be better that you had a little bit more depending on your personal physiology, um, but you're not going to be deficient. I, I don't care what Sally Fallon says. You can live on grass-fed beef and not be deficient in fat unless you're only eating specific, very lean cuts. I mean, if you get a piece of grass-fed ribeye and you look at the fat in that, it's got plenty of fat, um, especially a, a cattle that are well Uh, well cared for grass-fed animals. You're going to have plenty of fat. Um, if you start looking at things like, especially wild-caught salmon, it's huge in fat. It's a different fat, but there's plenty of fat there, and it's a good quality animal fat. You're getting a little bit of nuts and, and some seed in there. You're going to get another source of fat. Olive oil is, if you're trying to live on just olive oil for your fat, that's a very bad thing. But as an additional fat source, you're not going to have, uh, it's good for you. Um, the fat that's in uh, avocados, making avocados part of your diet, is incredibly beneficial. If you're eating a diet like that, you're not going to be getting too little for health. But it might be that if you added more, you actually would get better results if your goal is weight loss which is counter to everything that everybody tells us. But let me explain to you part of why. It is absolutely satiating to the appetite. If it's done in the absence of large amounts of carbohydrates, if you do it with large amounts of carbohydrates, not only will it make you fat, it will make you eat more. And I'll explain it like this. If I handed you a half a stick of butter and said, eat this, even if you loved the way that it tasted, you probably wouldn't eat the whole thing. Um, if you did, you probably wouldn't eat for like eight hours. It would be that satiate. It's pure fat. If you ever want to just kill your appetite for, for half a day, shoot down about four ounces of heavy cream. You won't want, you won't want food. I, I swear to God, it works. But if I take that half a stick of butter and cut it into four pieces and slather it on four pieces of toast, and you haven't eaten in a while, most people will scavenge down those four pieces of toast. And within a couple hours, we'll want something else to eat. It's fat in combination with large amounts of carbohydrate that trigger an eating response that can only be described as a drug-like response. And carbohydrate in high quantity will do this as well. Carbohydrate and protein will do this. But protein won't. And fat won't, and fat and protein combined won't do it either. It's almost like our bodies were designed to primarily run on fat and protein, and carbohydrates were not really meant for humans to eat in large quantities. When we look at paleo and we start thinking about where do large amounts of carbohydrates come from in society and food that we're told is good for us, it's wheat, it's barley, it's soy, it's rice. And 
we've been told for so many years that food's good for us. What we've forgotten is how much energy and work and effort does it take to make a wheat kernel or a rice grain edible? Let's, let's just shelve the argument about it being healthy for a second, or there's something you can do to make it healthy. Let's just think about human beings 10,000 years ago trying to survive, trying to live. If you had wheat, even modern large kerneled wheat, and the wheat, the wild strains of wheat back then were a much smaller kernel, but if you had it, you got to take it, you got to wait till it's at the perfect state to be harvested. Can't harvest it early. And if you leave it on too long, it falls off, and you can't harvest it late. You've got to harvest that at a very specific time, right? We have to cut the tops off. We have to dry it. Then we have to thresh it, so we have to get it the, the seeds off of the seed heads. Then we have to winnow it, all right? After we winnow it, we have these hard little balls. Rice is a similar process, Okay? Now we have to do something else with it in order to eat it. Now, if you were out in the wilderness 10,000 years ago, and you could cut the heads off of grass and do that, or there was a buffalo out there in the field that you could kill with a spear or run off a cliff and have 1,600 pounds of food, which one would you do first? Well, you'd let the buffalo eat the wheat, and you'd eat the buffalo. That's what paleo is based on, and you're going to get a lot of fat. The people in the paleo world that have really focused on low fat are doing so for reasons I don't really understand, and they're ignoring part of what was in my article on the paleo diet. I have a great article called What is the Paleo Diet over at Brink of Freedom. I'll put a link in the show notes today. And hopefully this time it won't crash Josiah's server, but since it's on my server, it shouldn't do that. Um, anyway... Um, What gets ignored by people like Lauren Cordain? Because what Lauren Cordain's response would be, well, yeah, they ate everything, but if you look at the total fat of a caribou in the tundra, it's actually relatively low. Yeah, but people don't all live in the tundra, Lauren. Um, if you look at the fat in American buffalo living in the heart of Plains country where most of the Plains Indians lived and hunted them, they have huge amounts of fat reserves. And the older the animal, the more fat reserves the animal has. And actually, a young bison just coming off of milk was pretty high in fat, too. <laughs> Because they put a lot of it on leading up to winter to get through that first winter. Right? If you start eating the organ meats, harvesting the fat specifically, and these natives are eating things like bear. Over in Europe, you're looking at things like Eurasian boar. Right? In Africa, you're looking at things like Cape buffalo, kudu, sable antelope, these larger animals, huge amounts of fat. What else made up a large portion of the diet that we don't think about today because people don't eat it? Insects. Okay, so yesterday I'm feeding uh, mealworms to my chickens because I got some mealworms on clearance at Walmart, dirt cheap, a big bag of them. And I look at the guaranteed analysis. Crude protein, 47%. Crude fat, 25% fat. Well, insects made up a large part of the diet. So we had a lot of fat in our diets as, as Paleolithic peoples. We really did because the foods that were most available that provided us the greatest return for our effort, which is how every hunter-gatherer lives, right? Hunter-gatherers are not really the most ambitious people in the world. We think of them that way because they live smart. So And they're, they're in good shape, so we think of them as being ambitious. But really what they want to do is enough work to see to their needs 
and then be left alone in their little clans and villages, right? That's actually a very rewarding lifestyle. So things that are long storable items like these grains, nuts, and seeds that they eventually figured out how to use and process primarily were used as a store, so if we can't find a buffalo, we have something to fall back on. So that's why the fat is there in the first place. And uh, as far as getting enough, if you're eating those types of things, you're going to get enough. As far as getting too much, as long as you're not putting large amounts of carbohydrates in it, it's almost impossible because your body won't let you do it. You'll, you'll become satiated and you won't want any more food. Now, could you do it? You, I mean, if you just started eating blubber and you forced it and you, you built up a tolerance, maybe. But it's not something I worry about. We'll just take another call. Jack, this is John. Uh, simple question about how to get rid of armadillos without killing them. I'm having some trouble with them, and um, I've tried trapping. They avoid all the traps I've ever put out. Um, the city doesn't want to help, and um, I'd love to be able to get rid of them without having to deal with the carcasses here in the city. That's it. Thanks for everything you do. This is John in McKinney. 972-984-8759. Um, I'm going to advise a larger trap. And here's what I mean. Yeah. Uh, armadillos are pretty interesting little critters. Kind of this thing that makes us think of days gone by with dinosaurs or something. And uh, they can be destructive with their digging especially. And uh, I can see why you might not want too many of them around. Uh, you don't want to kill them. Because, uh, I mean, a spotlight and a twenty-two would be the easiest answer, and I understand that, um, that you don't want to kill them. And I don't really want to kill them either because they're kind of cool little critters. Um, so if I want to get rid of them, I would think along the lines of making a miniature version of a hog trap. What I'm talking about is like four fences, right, with a door on one side and the food at the other side, so as many of them get in there as possible, that's how they build these hog traps, and when the one gets to the very end and the door falls, you've got them all trapped. The thing with dillos is they can dig really, really well, and they're not horrible climbers either. So what you might want to do then is rig up a trap like that, something in the neighborhood of like six by six. Then they don't feel confined, and they'll willingly go in through the gate. And maybe set up a MERS detector out there so that when there's activity, you know it, so that as soon as they're in there, you can get out of there with something like, I'd get like a deep net, like for a fishing net, like when, you, when you're landing a fish, you put underneath the fish and pull a large a deep net like that. And what I would do to avoid touching these things and getting scratched up and any other problems is tie a string about halfway down, so it's deep enough that the dillo's all the way inside the net, but you've got kind of a handle where you can grab the backside of it and get a sack or a box or something like that. Go out and net your dillos, right? They're not going to attack you or anything. And then you can like dump them into a sack or a box that way and, and relocate them. I don't know that I would go through all that over an armadillo, but if they're causing enough problems, maybe that would work. The thing is, they're coming from somewhere, and you might have to relocate an awful lot of them 
before you get rid of them. You might check and see if there's some professional nuisance animal control folks available in your area. Uh, those people do exist. It's not always up to the state to solve our problems with nuisance animals. And there are actually people in the private sector that would specialize in that and might be able to do something for you uh, a little bit more effective, including thinking of some ways to keep them out. If you make it so that your property is difficult and your neighbor's property is easy, they may choose to bother somebody else. Thing with them, though, like I said, they're good diggers. And because they're good diggers, they can be a problem. You could, if you wanted to have some fun, uh, get out there with a net and a spotlight and probably just catch them. Um, when I used to, I went, one time went out with Boy Scouts out to a camp in West Texas, because my son was a scout as a chaperone for a camp experience out there, uh, the boys had a lot of fun uh, spotlighting armadillos and running up and kicking them like soccer balls. We had to restrain the kicking to you can touch them with your foot and scare them uh, so that they weren't hurting these things. But uh, they had a lot of fun with it. It wasn't real hard to do. Uh, I've never had a problem with them, so that's as much as I can give you. If anybody's ever had success successfully eliminated armadillo problems, uh, give us a, uh, your story in the show notes today. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is John from Indiana. Uh, I got a quick question for you about a Bradford pair. Um, getting into an argument with my wife over whether or not to keep the tree that the housing addition is giving us to put in our front yard. Um, I'm wanting something that bears fruit or something that has another use other than to stink and look pretty. Um, anything, pear, apple, but uh, I can't convince life otherwise since the tree is free. Uh, if you give us any kind of advice, that'd be great. Uh, thanks and love what you do. Bye. I would start out with why you don't want it versus why you do want something else. And the answer to why you don't want a Bradford pear is it's a terrible tree. It's a short-lived, fast-growing tree that, generally speaking, sooner or later will have large parts of it break off and fall onto your property or the roof of your house. So not only is it a useless tree, it's not a very good tree as an ornamental. It grows fast and has pretty flowers in the spring, and it gets pretty colors in the fall, and that's why it's a very popular tree, but it doesn't mean it's a very good tree. And if you, if you want to make a case for this, call up a local tree removal service and ask them what is the number one tree that they have limbs fall off of and land in, in yards and are called to get rid of. And they will probably tell you in most residential areas it's a Bradford pear. So starting straight out of the gate, it's just, even if you only wanted a, a, a tree like that, it's a bad tree. It's a terrible tree. Uh, secondly, it's not free. There's no such thing as free. What it is, is they've built it into the cost of your home. So you've paid for it. And that means you've paid for something you didn't want. <laughs> Now, what, 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 how might you offset this? Offer to sell it. So, hey, let me see if anybody wants it at work. Maybe we could sell it and use that money toward buying a more productive tree. And then look at it this way. You can get a well-established fruit tree for like 60 to 80 bucks. Right? You're, this, is a, this is a 20 or 30 or 40 year investment depending on how long you're going to be there. Resale value. What's the resale value of a house with a couple productive trees when you're trying to sell a house versus one with some ornamental trees like everybody else has? People buy things that they want, and people today and more and more in the future want food in their backyard. So there's the positive return of investment. And other than that, she's your wife, man. you got to figure it out. I can only doctor fill this thing for you so much. But it's a bad tree. Putting the other tree in is a good investment both personally and for resale. 
And putting that tree in is likely to cause more damage to your home or property than the tree itself is worth today. And fifth, you could sell it to offset part of it because some people like stupid trees. And uh, I can't imagine it's that big of a tree they're giving you. I mean, you're probably looking at a tree that would cost you in a nursery anywhere between $20 and $80. And I don't think we make a long-standing decision in our lives over $20 to $80. If it was you want to run, I don't know, high-test gasoline in your car and it's low-test gas and it's a free tank, I don't care, take it, right? But this is something you're going to live with for you know decades if you stay in a house for decades, And we just don't make decisions that are that long in duration over that small amount of money. Just saying. Let's uh, let's take another call and see if you can find a place for that tree. Often uh, in these issues, as long as the tree goes somewhere good, the other party could be, you know, satiated in this. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Dan from Bass Ackwards, Long Island, New York. I was wondering if you had any suggestions or tips for folks who have never hunted but would like to start. Some background information for you. I'd like to start providing quality protein for my family, both for cost savings and for the knowledge of where my food is coming from. I know next to nothing about hunting, how to find the animals, what to do to increase my chances of finding them, hunting safety, above and beyond typical firearm safety, what to do with the animals once I've shot it, etc. Essentially, I need a hunting primer. This type of information seems to be what a father would pass on to his son, and being that we were fishermen, not hunters growing up, I never had that opportunity. Anything you can recommend would be greatly appreciated. Thanks for all you do. As someone that grew up with a very strong hunting tradition in my family, it's a very difficult question for me to answer because you do realize how much you've learned from family members and how valuable that information is, specifically when you move somewhere else where you've never hunted before and the game is different and the techniques are different and the laws are different and the seasons are different and the land access is different. And even though you know basic hunting, and a lot of your skills transfer, it's a step back for you. So then you have to, like I was doing yesterday, saying you got to put yourself in the other person, to be a good teacher, put yourself in the other person's shoes, and say, what if I didn't have any of that? And you realize it's pretty daunting. Um, my best advice is to seek out some mentorship. Um, th- th- and, and I would start out with, you mentioned um, basically, you know, the rules of the game, so to speak, in firearm safety. I would just say, First of all, with firearm safety, go take a good firearms course. Uh, and if you can find somebody as an instructor, you say, you know, I'm really interested in hunting, so I'm more interested in shotguns and long guns and things like that uh, than I am, you know, so much how to defend myself if I'm attacked by a two-legged rat. Uh, you, you can probably find somebody to help you with that. I would tell you that if you're going to do any um, bird hunting, like dove or duck or anything, then take up skeet shooting. Uh, go, you can rent a gun. You can get an instructor, go do sporting clays. These will start you get you in that mindset. Uh, definitely don't just say, I'm going to be a deer hunter. Because especially in the Northeast, you have so much public land and so much private land that's easy to access by asking permission. There's a lot of utility and learning and scouting that go with hunting squirrels, rabbits, pheasants, if you can still find them, upland game like grouse. Uh, doves, dove season's pretty much passed for the year, but those are all great ways to get out, meet people, uh, specifically landowners and things like that. Look for, in, in your area, there's a lot of Ronnie gun clubs. 
Uh, even Long Island, I'm sure, has some rod and gun clubs. Join a rod and gun club. Start talking to people that hunt. Don't be like, dude, I need you to take me hunting, because people are pretty protective of their, you know, their places that they have and things like that. And they don't really like people just coming in and asking for access. Focus on the relationship first. Start going to, to gun ranges. Even in New York, you have them. Uh, start shooting skeet and, and, and sporting places. Be, a, like I said, a great place uh, to start. If you want to be a big game hunter in the Northeast, this is like my little secret pieces of advice. Um, every year in states like New York and Pennsylvania, deer hunting is like a major event. And people go what they called in Pennsylvania anyway, up county. They go to remote counties. Uh, a lot of times cabins, hotels, stay like three, four days to a week and, and hunt in big packs and groups. And those counties are fairly lightly populated, but they have a lot of deer. And that's why those people go there. And every year, your state game department publishes the numbers of the deer harvested by county. You can find that in any state on your state game department's website. And if you have trouble finding it, get with their technical support and they'll tell you where to find it. Here's the secret. Become a bow hunter. And set your time, your week away, your vacation time, and go during bow season. I know this may not be perfect for a new hunter, but it expands the questions to more people. And here's how you do it. Find the, the county in your state with the highest number of deer killed in firearm season. And most of you know what I'm going to say now. And you're like, wow, right? And the lowest number taken in archery season. It doesn't mean that archery season is poor there. It means that there's not that many locals because archery is generally far more hunted in the local area where firearms deer hunters a lot of times will travel to a deer camp. So go on your own little mini deer camp yourself or yourself and a buddy. Pick that state with that high, high deer harvest in firearm season. Go in mid or early archery season. The key is then, though, you don't really know the area as well, and it would be a great idea to get a couple scouting trips to that area first. But inside your own state, you should be able to pull that off. I feel like I need to do a whole show on getting started hunting. Uh, and I'd like your suggestions in today's show notes for how to meet people that can become solid mentors. Because I know it's a weird thing to just have somebody, I want you to be my hunting mentor. You know, like I don't have any time to even hunt myself right now. I got so much stuff going on. We're heading to the hunting season. I have nothing booked this year. I plan to take at least two trips. I'm probably not going to take any. I, I might take one trip down to South Texas. I don't know. And But even if I did, you know, like somebody emailed me one time, will you take me hunting? And my response was, you're coming from out of state. It's your first trip. You don't know anything. Why don't you hire a guide where you live? So I would say that that is your biggest uh, thing you could do. Start looking for guided trips and start explaining to the guide, I don't just want you to take me out let me kill something. I want you to explain things to me like why we're there, uh, why we've selected an area and things like that. So guided trips and take up things like sporting clays, uh, and sporting clays would be the big one. Sporting clays is very popular with uh, upland game hunters because it mimics that. It's not like shooting skeet where you're just standing there and you know, okay, I'm going to have a shot here and a shot there. Sporting clays is like golf with a shotgun, and it's a great pastime. But definitely get the foundation of gun safety, and to get a hunting license, um, you're going to have to take a hunter safety course as well. And you'll learn a lot about game in your state if you take instead of doing like the online one actually go to the two-day class usually it's run by the game department in your state usually it's taught by a game warden um, and you'll learn a lot from that 
and you'll meet a lot of other hunters because what you'll be sitting in is a room of mostly adults with their children. And I know that like you don't have a kid with you and all, but you got to take it, right? So go there and talk to the other fathers uh, and, and, and even mothers as well. Um, when my son took his, for instance, I was out of town, so my wife went with him. And she said it was actually pretty interesting. So if it's interesting to her, it could be interesting to you too. Uh, so go where people that go that are hunters and, and look for the relationship first. And, you know, then as you begin to formalize, just say, you know, I'm looking to hunt and I don't really know where to start. Um, you'll find people that'll say, well, you know, you could do this or you could do that. Maybe they'll take you on, you know, they might not show you the family secret deer hunting spot, but they might take you squirrel hunting. Great place to start. And a lot of, um, a lot of those skills from hunting squirrels transfer to hunting deer. Squirrels are easier. There's more of them, longer seasons, and they're dumb because they go up in trees and shake their tail at you, but you get out there and you see deer. And that's my biggest piece of advice. Get out where there are, in hunt, on huntable land. And get out there not during hunting season. Get out there prior to hunting season. Spend a lot of time hiking those properties, learning those properties. Uh, and that makes you a better hunter. But understand one thing though, especially in New York, Uh, with the amount of deer hunting activity you have in rifle season there. Deer will change their pattern the day gun season opens because 400 million yahoos are going to go out there and start whooping and hollering and driving deer around. So the, the smart deer hunter in those areas in rifle season finds thick, out-of-the-way places that are not hunted, and they let all the yahoos push the deer right to them. So there's another little tip as well. But it's a long road if you've never done it before. But start with gun safety and hunter safety courses and and try just finding some places you can go do shoot sporting clays. See if you can find a club or something to get involved with that. Then you'll meet hunters, and then you have the establishment of a relationship toward finding someone that could be a mentor. Uh, let's take another call. Hello. On uh, February 14th of this year, you had a guy on from Moon Valley Preppers Uh, and you did a, about an hour and a half long show on quail. Uh, I was curious if you did the quail, uh, if you started that, because you seemed very excited about it on that uh, particular show. So I was curious if you did it, how it was going, and if you didn't, why. Um, I'm thinking about doing it myself. I got some pens built. I'm getting ready to start the process. Uh, just wondering if you did it and how it was going, and if not, what uh, changed your mind. Thanks. Bye. Yeah, I was definitely pretty excited about the potential of it. And then we got here, and the first thing we did was get chickens, and the second thing we did was get geese. And at that point, I decided that was enough for now. And now we're running meat birds, uh, chickens on top of that. Um, with the amount of eggs I get from chickens, my concern with doing quail now is what the heck do I do with all those additional eggs? And I can hatch a lot of them for meat. And I think if I do quail, and I'm not ruling it out, I still think I might definitely do quail, Uh, if I do that, I am going to prob probably focus almost 100% on meat production out of them. Though the eggs are pretty good. I was at a farmer's market recently, and I bought some pickled quail eggs. And they were pretty good. I think I could do better. I think I'm, I can do a better pickled egg than they were. But those were pretty good. Um, and I've also learned that you can pickle quail eggs without peeling them. You basically hard boil them, and the pickling brine kind of just basically eats away the shell. And when I ate these, I could tell that's how they were done. There's a shell-like consistency to the outside of it, but it's not crackly or anything. You just kind of tell it used to be shell. But it's not off-putting, especially once you get used to it. Uh, so I'm considering quail, but the reason I haven't done it yet 
is because I really believe when you start raising livestock, you should take you know one thing at a time, get it established, get a rhythm going with it before you add something else so you don't overwhelm yourself. So uh, yeah, I think and I think the ideal place for quail is like Moon Valley Prepper, you know, where he's living in a suburban area where he can't have chickens running around the backyard, but he's producing like you know twenty thousand quail eggs and hundreds of meat birds a year out of a garage, uh, where I have the ability to run meat chickens and produce a larger bird. Um, but quail are you kind of really good. Uh, so I'm still looking to do that, but I, it's just, again, it's a kind of a phasing in thing. Uh, but it's something we do think we'll be doing in the future. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. It's Brian from California. Um, my question to you is regarding while I'm waiting to amass my situation to be able to get a little bit further outside of a well-populated area, Are there any tips that you can kind of give people like me who are living in an urban area um, just in case something may or may not happen um, in the meantime while we're sort of preparing to do family constraints, time constraints, and money constraints to move out of the city? Um, Is there any particular advice that you can possibly give us? Again, Jack, thank you very much for all that you do. I really appreciate your hard work, and thank you. Well, here's the reality. The desire to live, you know, out of the suburbs in the urban environment is is big in most of our hearts because in my view it's not a normal way to live. Stacked up on top of each other, congested, everybody backed up against each other. A lot of the complaints and problems and, and annoyances that we have in in the suburbs are because people are just too close. Um, and people are close without a, a free will of association. What I mean by that is, yes, people in, in the past and even in, in modern times that live in more of a village environment live in somewhat close proximity to each other, but it's a free association. People band together for a, a reason. We like each other. We're related to each other, etc. Where you buy a little piece of land... Uh, you know, out in the middle of, uh, you know, the suburbs, and the guy that moves in next door to you is a guy you've never heard of before, and you guys just might not like each other, period. And you're stuck with each other. So there's a lot of desire there that has nothing to do with whether we're safe or secure or not. That sounds like more of where you're coming from. Like, I want to live there, but I'm not running away because I'm scared. But the risk of suburbia and urban environments is in a disaster. People are your biggest problem. However, on the other side is people can be your biggest solution. Having people to help is great. Having people to, that freak out is bad. So your biggest thing in an urban or suburban environment, a good solid bug out plan, where you're going to go and how you're going to get there. Multiple routes and multiple locations so that you're prepared to go if you have to go. And you can't wait till the last minute to have to do that. So having a good solid bug out plan, where you're going to go and how you're going to get there, And if you look up the show on documentation on the Survival Podcast, just put documentation and you'll find a show on it. Because um, I can't look that one up for you today. I've already got the show notes done. I just kind of came to me now. It would be a good idea to add that to your bug out planning. The other side of it, though, is there's some advantages to homesteading and to prepping in an urban environment. And you can approach this to it. I have two shows I'm going to recommend for you. Both will be linked for you in the show notes. 
The first one is an older one, all the way back August 18, 2010, episode 495, The Unique Needs of the Urban and Suburban Prepper. They go through all types of things on this, so I'm not going to redo that episode today. And then from a homesteading standpoint, episode 1130 with Kelly Korn and Eric Knudsen, uh, all about urban homesteading. So from a standpoint of if you're going to make a go of it here, how do you do it? I think that's the best episode we've ever done. So I'm giving you those two episodes as a resource. I'm telling you your primary concern while you're there is if things go really bad in your area, people rioting and things like that, or just a lack of services and waiting too long to leave, so now you can't get out. So maybe nobody's nobody's rioting, nobody's burning down houses, but there's no services, there's no food, there's no water, um, and your house is damaged and you can't get out because you waited too long to leave, right? But storing food, storing water, having electrical redundancy, 90% of it's exactly the same in the suburbs as it is out in a rural landscape. The reason the suburbs suffer more is when you live out in the boonies, so to speak, you know you're on your own. You don't have that false sense of security. You know if the power goes out, you're coming last. You know if the road gets washed out, you're sunk. You can't just walk a mile down to the convenience store, right? In the urban environment, the suburban environment, because you can do that on a day-to-day basis, you don't realize how easy it is for those things to be disrupted. So the main reasons you're vulnerable in an urban environment are because of your, your, your fellow people who freak out and drain what resources are left or cause harm and damage or the false sense of security where you don't prepare enough. If you're prepared to be comfortable for two weeks, two to three weeks' time, a month is better, but two to three weeks' time, unless there's a Rodney King-style riot or something like that, you're going to be just fine no matter where you are in most disasters. That's why that's kind of our startup. Let's get to a point where we can take care of ourselves for a month on our own. And if everybody in America would do just that much, most of the horrible things you see wouldn't happen. And when somebody was wiped out in a flood or something like that, there'd be so many people on the edge of that disaster ready to help that would be like, I don't need this right now. I can restock that... A lot of the misery that occurs would just not happen or would be severely mitigated. So you have to take that little island of responsibility on for yourself because, frankly, the people around you are not ready to take it seriously and do it yet. We're growing in number. Modern, you know, modern survivalism is growing in number, but we're still a very small minority of the total. So I recommend, again, those two episodes, 1130 and 490, uh, 495, both will be available for you in today's show notes. Yeah, Jack, this is Jamie up in Portland. I had a question about making wine out of fruit. Um, I acquired 40 pounds of plums this year from a friend, and I decided to make some plum wine, and it came out right at about 11 12% alcohol. But when I drink it, uh, it's got almost a, like a liquor flavor, and it's got a real harsh aftertaste, and it's pretty dry. Um, I'm wondering if there's anything I can do to remedy this, or maybe it was just the kind of yeast I used, or maybe if when I bottle it, that'll go away with time. Uh, look forward to hearing this on the show, and keep up the good work. Thank you. Well, it sounds like one thing is you just have a young wine. It, it, it's pretty young. It, it hasn't aged for a while, and a lot of the... 
especially something like a fruit bomb that you're going to get out of uh, of something like a plum is going to need some time to to age out. And you're you're probably looking at a wine that's going to be at its best drinking at about one year of age, one to two years of age, and it's it's not going to be a wine that you're going to age for ten years. It's 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 a it's a you know a wine that you drink at a, at a young age, but you know in the fermenter it's not going to be that great when it's just been finished. Um, 11 to 11.5%, assuming you didn't add a lot of additional sugar to it, it's probably right about where it's supposed to be. Uh, that, that would be about right. I'm sure there was some additional sugar added to that in some form. Um, if it's a cidery taste, almost like a lightly, mildly carbonated, not done yet is one way to look at it. Um, And, and that's common with fruit wine. Sometimes they get a little bit of a stuck fermentation. They still got a little bit of fermentation going on, and they have this this cidery, uh, spiky taste. But you're talking about a liquor taste. Um, while that wine's young at 11%, the alcohol can be really up front and put a little bit of heat into it. It'll mellow with some age. Um, also... The plum itself is a very rich flavor, and if we take a little bit of that heat of that upfront alcohol in a young wine and the richness of the plum, you might call that like a brandy-like sensation, and it's kind of harsh. So it may be that all you need to do is, is, uh, is, is age this stuff for a while. It might be a good idea to clean out a good five-gallon glass secondary fermenter and move it into there for a few more weeks to a month before bottling it, and then give it you know six months to a year in the bottle to really mature and see how you did. If it's your first batch of wine, there's a litany of things you could have done. And as far as the harshness and the effect that yeast, without knowing what yeast you used, that's really difficult for me to say. Um, for a wine like that, if you wanted it to be a dry wine, something like a Red Star Champagne yeast uh, would take it to a dry finish, which it sounds like you, you ended up with. It's not real sweet. You're not going to end up, in most instances, I think that it's an expectation with a wine where people expect that it's going to be sweet because you started out with something sweet like a plum. The entire purpose of fermentation is to take that sugar and convert it into alcohol. So only the residual sugars and the non-fermentable sugars remain, and you get a fruity, what they call off-dry, often with a fruit wine, where it tastes sweet, but it's not. It's got like a sweetness in it, but it's got a dry finish, which is actually the way you want them to be. You don't want them to be overly sweet, but when they're young and that alcohol is hot up front, Uh, and it might be a little cidery yet. It hasn't had all the flavors blend together yet. Um, it, often you won't get that yet because the alcohol and the, the assertiveness of the unblended flavors overwhelms it. So it may just be a racket to a secondary, make sure it's fully fermented, keep good hygiene with it bottle it and leave it in the bottle for about six months to try it then. And this would be an interesting, your first batch, to take all your wine and try a bottle a month in and make tasting notes. Try a bottle two months in and make tasting notes. And, and kind of track it all the way through. You should have at least enough bottles to, you know, to have 12 bottles out of that much plum, uh, maybe one a month over a year or maybe one every other month. So let it sit in the bottle for, for, for a month, try it, 
then go you know month two, month three, and try it month four, and then go month five, month six, try it month seven, like that, and space it out about 60 to 90 days between bottles. So maybe you can be trying a bottle a year, and because this is what you're going to want to know: how well does it improve over that year, and does the does the improvement begin to stall? So that when you're making that wine again, you can time it into your venting so that you know when I make this wine at this time this year, it really isn't its prime at this time next year. So if I'm going to do my plum harvest wine, let's say in August when plums are everywhere, then I know I'll be serving plum wine in August next year. And a lot of things in the wine world that take longer, unlike the beer world, we think of it at the time of the harvest, but it's because you're drinking that one or two year old wine. Anyway, give that a shot and uh, report back in the future and let us know. Uh, let's take another call. Hello, Jack. This is Charles from Western Washington. I have a question regarding Antelope batteries that Stephen Harris recommended. I sure love these batteries, and I would love to figure out a system to recharge them day after day with, uh, without any power on the electrical grid. So you might be going, gee, we heard that question last week. It's the same guy, and it's the same question. There's nothing new. Why well, play it again? Well, because uh, the gentleman uh, left a, a comment last week and said, I maybe I didn't explain myself well. What I want to know is how do I keep these batteries charged in a total grid-down scenario where I can't even get gasoline anymore? I'm out of gas now. And the answer is solar. And it's not any gimmicky little 5-watt panel to charge the batteries with. It's going to at least a 100-watt solar panel. It's setting up at least a, you know, one marine battery, probably two marine battery backup, you know, power solar system, not real expensive to do with an inverter as a backup power source and using their charger to charge them off of that. You, you, you have to think about what you're trying to do here and And the best way we can think of it is we're trying to fill up a bucket. I'm oversimplifying batteries here when I do this, but it's probably good that we oversimplify things that are really simple to solve if we don't get into watts and amp hours and all this other crap. In the end, a battery is an energy bucket. And you can pretty much look at how much capacity the battery has by how big it is. Trust me, a battery with a significant greater capacity to store energy is bigger. And if it wasn't true, then you'd have a battery, you know, the size of a pack of cigarettes running your car. And you don't, right? And you, your battery in your lawnmower would probably be the size of a watch battery. But it's not. It's the size of, you know, I don't know, a little riding lawnmower has a battery about the size of like 10 decks of cards. Maybe a, a third to 20% of a, of, a, of a car battery, a smaller car battery. And then a truck like mine, big diesel truck, has a big demand to turn that big, huge motor over. I got two big batteries, probably bigger than most passenger cars individually, and I got two of them, right? So a bigger battery holds more. So when you take a little bitty solar panel and you're trying to use like some little gimmicky charger with it to charge a AA battery, you're filling up a little bitty bucket with a little tiny eyedropper. Uh, this is the best way to think of it. Like, you got, And then, so, on the times when the solar energy is at its peak, where you really need to be maximizing, because this is now you're down to this is all you've got, right? It, all I've got is sun, right? I don't have anything else to get power. The clouds are out today, I'm screwed. It's night, I'm screwed. But then all of a sudden the sun is up, and it's like, it's just raging, right? And you're sitting there with your eyedropper, even its best condition, going drip, 
drip, drip, right? When you could be making it go plunk, 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 filling up a much bigger bucket. So by setting, if you want to do this with this in mind, I'm not going to have gas. I'm not going to. I'm going to have to. I'm going to have to rely on something that's completely renewable. You're looking at a minimum 100 watt solar panel based system, and you're looking at a minimum of one really good uh, heavy duty marine grade battery. And I would probably go more toward the the, the world of 250 watts of solar energy. Uh, and two GC2 golf cart batteries, six volt batteries hooked up to provide 12 volts of power and a decent um, uh, inverter. On the inverter, the problem that people have with this is they'll set up a system like I've just described. And they'll get like a 3600 watt inverter and hook it up to it. And, and, and no doubt, fully charged, it'll put out a lot of watts. But it won't. Now, we're, when you think about using the power, now the analogy goes the other way. The bucket's full, you can drip, 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 plunk, 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 whoosh like a water faucet or like a fire hose, right? And it, it, when you go to these big, super-duper, badass inverters with a system like that, and, you, and if you actually use the power they're capable of giving you, you've turned on the fire hose, and you're going to drain the bucket very, very fast. But you set up 100 to 250 watts of solar with a couple marine batteries or a couple GC2 golf cart batteries, and one full charge of those will charge the, you know, 8, 16 end loops many, many times. Many, many times. So if you're primarily using those little batteries for things, you're not trying to power a cabin, but you want to make sure I can run a radio, I can run a flashlight, I can run things like that, you can maximize the time when the solar energy is at its highest Store it in two big buckets and put it in your little glasses is the way to think of it. So that would be the best long-term sustainable way to make sure you could have AA batteries is to catch energy with solar and dump it into a big battery. That said, I think you're better off building the battery backup system okay, and getting a charger maintainer and plugging it in at your house Because the odds that you'll need power for a few weeks are far greater than you're going to need power for a few years with no other opportunities. I would also tell you that a small generator and 100 gallons of gas will probably cost you less than building a solar system, like I said. And do you know how many times that small, that small generator could charge that big battery bank and then how many times that battery bank could charge those little batteries? And, and the numbers are astronomically better, even over a period of maybe a year, than they are for what you're going to do with solar for return of the investment. Return of investment on solar works this way. It's the most expensive energy you'll produce, at least for now. It's, in some ways, the most least efficient energy you'll ever produce. But the most expensive energy is no energy. So solar, to me, is my last of my last. And I want to put everything in place first that, 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 that is a self-reliance thing before I go to the self-sufficiency of solar. Unless I have a blue sky budget. If I have a blue sky budget, fine. I'll cover every square centimeter of the roof with solar. I'll put a massive battery system in. I'll do solar with battery, with grid tie, 
both ways back fourth Sunday, and if the grid goes down, I might not have everything, but I've got plenty of power. But like most people, I don't have a blue sky budget. You probably don't either. So the best answer is first, build your battery bank. Two batteries, good Schumacher charger, maintainer, uh, okay? Set that up the way Steve would teach you. Good inverter for it, 800, 1600-watt inverter, something like that. Get that up and running and plug into the grid and charge the maintained. Then, later, invest in the solar and bring solar to it and rely on the solar only when it runs out, and you'll probably never rely on it at all. But then you'll teach yourself solar, and maybe you build a larger system at some point. It's kind of the, the, kind of the tactic we're taking here. And it's why I had Steve do the battery videos and the backup power system for a vehicle and all. And um, you, you have to start thinking this way. Instead of worrying about everything going away, worry about when things fail. And the odds that we're going to end up in a situation where there's not a drop of gas ever again, There's, the, there's nothing. There's no propane. It's all gone. There's no generators. Nothing. And the only thing you got is your pen light, your transistor radio, and your end-loop batteries. Very, very, very small. The odds that you might have to go two, three weeks or more without power are high. High. Very, very high. With some things that we're probably going to deal with over the next 10 to 20 years. So build the solution to that end first and then extend beyond it because it's less expensive and easier to do that first. Again, it's like the journey from Miami to, you know, let's go from Florida to Maine. Well, you're going to go through Georgia, right? I don't want to go through Georgia. Fine. You can go around Georgia. You can do it out the panhandle and around, but it's going to take longer and cost more money for no benefit, right? So if you're going to build a solar panel-based system with battery backup, you're going to need batteries and an inverter. To do it for your house with, with a charger controller, you need batteries and an inverter, right? So the next question is, do I invest in a Schumacher, Schumacher charger or a solar panel, right? So think about this now. Now we can go get it. You know, if we're going to get into this to the point where sun's going to do a lot for us, we're probably going to jump up from that 100-watt solar panel up to like a 250-watt panel. 250-watt panel is going to run us between $300 and $500, depending on what we buy. It is only going to work when the sun shines. We're probably into it for another $100 bucks for a good solar charge controller. Uh, you can do it with a little small one, but when we're going up into that range, 250, 500 watts, we're probably by the right uh, charge controller looking at 50 to 100 bucks. Call it one way or another, $400 by the time you buy all little pieces to fit it all together, and you're doing good if you can add the solar for 400 bucks. Now, we can buy the best, biggest, fastest Schumacher charger, a charger maintainer for $99. And it's plug and play from there. I plug it in the wall, I hook it up to the batteries, it gets the first charge up, it's intelligent, it goes into the third stage, it goes into maintenance, it keeps the battery bank maintained, and if the power goes out, I know it's going to work. Now, here's the thing. I have to buy the batteries and the inverter to do the solar anyway. The next step, do I tie it to a grid charger like the Schumacher, or do I turn it into a solar, uh, you know, Batmobile, right? 
and, and the, the the cost to buy the grid charge solar or the grid charger that plugs into my wall is about 20 to 25% of doing the solar and it'll do more and I know it'll work now if I have two good sized batteries sitting there and all I'm worried about is charging and loop batteries I can charge batteries for months honest to god months on that reserve of power the sun I can keep recharging it but I can only use it as fast as I can make it. So what makes sense is we set it up with the charger, then we add solar. Then we add solar later. And before I would add solar, I'd say, next, go out and buy a cheap generator. You know, if you're really worried about this, go out and buy a cheap generator. Stretch the money. You can go buy a decent little cheap generator for two to $300. You can buy a pretty dadgone good generator that'll run a lot of stuff in your house. For 300, 400 bucks. You can buy a big ass generator like I got for like $700. Okay. But you can buy a cheap little 1500 watt generator down at Tractor Supply for like, I saw one yesterday for $149. I almost bought it just to have it. Now, is it a great generator long term? No, but you know what? It'll run that Schumacher charger, it'll charge that battery, it sips gas, and if you had it set up on the grid ready to go, and then you set up maybe four or five-gallon cans of fuel, you have a huge self-reliance quotient for energy, right? For little things like running those end-loop batteries and things like that. If you have a full tank in your car and an inverter for your car, all I'm trying to get you to do here is pull back from the precipice of, it's the end of the world as we know it, all I have for the rest of my life are end-loop batteries. That's so far out there that it makes sense to build all the way up to that first and then add that at the end. And it's solar. And it's probably another $400 investment at that point. And at that point, it's probably $400 well spent. And before you've done all that, it's probably $400 poorly spent, if that makes sense. So that's a long answer to a simple question because the, the answer is a big battery and a big solar panel and an inverter and a charge controller. Right, but 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 that's a, a, I would be doing you a disservice if I didn't point out all the flaws with doing that before you do all these other things. Now, if you've done all those other things and you're saying, well, how do I then by by all means, two hundred fifty five hundred thousand watts of solar if you want to at that point, go put it up on the roof, put it, go for it. It makes it makes so much sense at that point, as long as you have the budget for it and there's not other critically necessary things missing from your prepping. If you've done all that, but you have like one week worth of food in reserve, right? to spend that money, several thousand dollars at that point, on food, right? But if you've got things pretty squared away, and you're saying like, this is the next step I want to take with energy, yeah, that's when solar makes sense. Um, but if there's anything really necessary in your preps, from defense, security, food, comms, anything really necessary, I would put that pretty far to the back of the line because of order of probability of disaster occurrence and the inverse relationship with disaster impact. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Dylan Angus Bangus on the forum. 
My question is whether an EcoZoom stove or any other of the, the larger rocket stoves would be sufficient to be uh, a, a primary grill for six to months to a year. Um, background is I'm, I'm getting a new house, don't have a grill there yet, and have an opportunity to buy a temporary grill before I put in a, a more permanent outdoor kitchen grill kind of area. And uh, I'd like to get an EcoZoom or something like that, but I'm, I'm trying to determine if that's enough to support uh, grilling pretty regularly uh, once or twice a week. A uh, couple steaks, a couple chickens. Anyway, I'd just like to hear your opinion on whether or not an EcoZoom is up to that task or if it's really not uh, quite cut out for that much duty. Thanks. Let me first say I love, 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 love the crap out of my EcoZoom Versa rocket stove, which will burn both wood and charcoal for me. I think it's one of the most flexible, versatile cooking things out there, but a grill it is not. It is not a grill, and it doesn't function like a grill, and it doesn't grill well, and it won't, because it concentrates the heat to a small area. Now, you can put a big uh, cast iron uh, skillet or flat piece up on top of it, and it will griddle pretty well for you. I've made everything from, you know, high intensity heat necessary things to simmering things like gumbo with mine. I've done crab cakes, deep fried crab cakes with mine. I I mean, you can do so much with it, but it's a stove, it's not a grill, and it doesn't cook the way a grill does. And it's not really a money saver for you. Um, an EcoZoom Versa rocket stove will run about 129 An EcoZoom Dura, which is the plain Jane one that doesn't do charcoal well, uh, that's just for using wood, about 119 The advantage is, is efficiency, highly, highly efficient combustion, great concentration of heat, and the Versa using charcoal, an incredible, incredible amount of cooking control. All right? It's awesome for that. Really awesome. But doesn't grill, and again you're out about a hundred to you know 120 bucks. What I would recommend if you and it runs on scrap wood you can pick up off the ground almost anywhere you go you can take a walk around the block even in suburbia and find sticks and twigs enough to cook a meal with it with a rocket stove. And if you store some charcoal, you know you can get a lot of cooking out of about six bricks of charcoal. So there's that. And and what I'm going to recommend for you doesn't do that. It sounds to me like down the road you're going to put in a, a great big gas grill. That's what it sounds like. I'm guessing just the way you said it. Permanent, like outdoor kitchen-y type, I go for it. Uh, let me highly recommend when you do, you look at infrared cooking technology with gas. It just uses some reflect. It's just gas. It's not a light, but it's. I, I have one by Charbroil. And I just replaced the the uh, the grills in it with cast iron. So I've got infrared running on cast iron, and it is awesome, awesome, awesome. So if you're going to go to gas eventually, you know, do that. And it sounds to me like you're saying I don't want to put money into a half-assed gas grill when I know I'm going to put in an awesome gas grill down the road. I understand. I'm going to tell you that once you get a gas grill, you're going to think back to, man, I remember what a hamburger tastes like when it's cooked over charcoal, and it's so good. And I've, it's, it's not Friday night when I just got home from work and I need to cook and go do something with the kids. It's Saturday afternoon. I got time for the fire and the coals to burn down and, mmm, charcoal. And you look at your gas grill and go, huh, I guess I'll use it. So here's what you do. You go out and get you yourself one of the best 
grills ever made for just basic barbecuing, and it's a hundred bucks. It is the Weber 741001 Silver One Touch 22 and a half inch kettle grill black. You can find it on Amazon. Just put in Weber kettle grill, and you'll find lots of different options. But that $100 one, and if you're a Prime member, they'll ship it to you for free in two days. It's easy to put together. If you take care of it, it will last a long time. I'm not in love with the way the legs are made and, and stuff. And It's not the same grill it was 50 years ago, but the kettle portion of it, the dome portion of it, is very solid. And as long as you don't get stupid with how big a fire you build in it, and as long as you keep it covered when not in use, it will last you for years. And it's a standard size, and when your grill, you know, the, the, the grill part itself kind of wears out, you can get parts for it for cheap. You can get the inner parts for it for cheap. You can go right to Weber's website and buy them. Everybody sells them. Uh, get yourself, and I'm on Amazon right now. I'm not even going to use an affiliate link or anything. I'm going to tell you right now, if you go and you look up this thing, you'll see at the bottom, a, the Weber grill, the cover made for it, and a... Fire starter, um, uh, charcoal starter, uh, chimney starter, which is the way to go with your charcoal, where you don't have to use lighter fluid, all three for 138 bucks on Prime. And that's about the same as the EcoZoom stuff. Then go down to any store in your area and stock up on charcoal. And I would do that before I would do an EcoZoom stove if you want to grill. If you want to cook outside and you don't mind pulling out the cast iron skillets and all, The Versa is awesome, but let's accept it for what it is, a stove, not a grill. But I'll tell you, you're hard-pressed to be a, Web, a Weber kettle grill. You can buy a little bit higher end of one than the one that I've recommended if you want to. Um, I would stay away from their little Smoky Joe thing. Tabletop grills suck. They're too small. You get too much heat in too small of an area. Um, I did a lot with little grills when I was living in apartments because I could get away with it when you're not supposed to have a grill in an apartment. But they're not, you know, I, I wouldn't do it. If you wanted to upgrade a little bit without getting expensive and still stay in the neighborhood of the, um, of the uh, Versa, uh, the One Touch Gold is also a 22-inch Weber kettle grill. It's got a lot more control, and it's probably worth the extra 50 bucks. And... I, if you were going to spend more money, there's the Gold One Touch, and it's a 26-inch grill, and it's just a bigger grill, but it's about $300. But I would buy any of those if you want a grill before the Versa. And uh, I, I would really look at it, as long as the budget's not that tight, going right up to that One Touch Gold, the 22-inch grill, $150. Get a cover for it and keep it well-maintained. And even when you have your big, giant gas grill, you'll find yourself going... Man, I want to do a couple whole chickens today, you know, beer can chicken or something like that, and I'm going to do them there. And here's the cool thing. You've got flexibility now uh, for redundancy and resiliency, but just talk about it from being kind of a cook, right, because I like to cook. Let's say I want to make my chickens. I want to make my chickens have a nice, smoky flavor, all right? But I want them done fast, er, kind of. Well, I can make myself a little fire on that. Um, Weber grill, soak some mesquite or hickory, put it on those coals and get that smoker going. Throw those chickens on there for about an hour and smoke infuse them. 
By that time, that little fire's kind of done its thing and burnt, burned out. That chicken's going to be bloody red raw in the center, but I can go finish it on my gas grill. You ain't doing that with an EcoZoom Versa. Stove versus grill, there's my recommendation. And when it comes to grills, uh, Weber builds some of the best stuff that's out there still today. If you're ever like at an estate sale or something like that, and you find yourself a Weber grill, like one of these style Weber grills from like the 40s or 50s, um, get your hands on that as long as it's not like rusted through or something. If it's in good shape, you've got something really special there. They're almost impossible to find, though. Uh, let's take one more, I think, and we're done for the day. Hey, Jack. It's TJ from Pennsylvania. Kind of a different one for you. Um, curious to whether or not it's worth buying synthetic motor oil as opposed to, you know, the regular non-synthetic stuff. Um, that's pretty much it. Thanks, man. Bye. Actually, I've got one more after this. Um, and I'm going to give this one a short answer. Synthetic oil, is it worth it? Yeah, kind of. Here's the basic answer. You generally can go about twice as far before an oil change with synthetic oil. Synthetic oil at that point is generally in better shape overall from a standpoint of just can it do what oil is supposed to do at that point than um, conventional oil is at half the mileage. But you have to change it anyway because it's dirty. Um, by going with synthetics, your maintenance is longer in between, and your cost actually gets very close to the same. Uh, some vehicles are specifically designed to run with synthetics, and specifically specific synthetics. So my Jetta diesel is designed to run with synthetic oil that's designed specifically for European diesel engines. And I really need to be using that, and it's expensive. It's about 90 bucks for an oil change. But I can go 10,000 miles between oil changes by scheduled maintenance. But at some point, you got to change oil no matter what shape the oil itself is in because it becomes dirty. And your filter can only do so much work, and the filter's got to be changed, and now I've got to change the oil. So the answer is, when you look at it, if it costs only twice as much and the maintenance is half, you're right back to where you started, and it's worth it. If you look at the scheduled maintenance for your vehicle, and that's not the case, then it's probably not worth it just purely from an economic standpoint. But let's think about redundancy and resiliency in a grid-down scenario. It is more likely okay, that you will have a lot of miles left on your vehicle if you would go through a short-term period where getting your vehicle serviced is not possible and you're just not in a position to be doing it for yourself. I can make a little bit of a case for that. But I'll tell you what, there's a convenience factor Okay, when it comes to having your oil change with doing it less frequently. And if it's more convenient, you're more likely to do it when it does come up. So that's why I'm pretty big on synthetic oils, because since I only have to do it half as often, I'm more likely to do it when it's time. But I do need to make sure I'm paying attention to it and get it done. It's just less of a pain in the ass to do something a few times a year than six times a year. Depending on how many miles you're driving. It also depends on the age of your vehicle and, and some other things. And people have a lot of opinions on this. There's a lot of people that think the synthetic blends that are part conventional, part synthetic, more cost effective, are the best balance between the two questions. Maybe. Um, but I think you're either going synthetic or you're not. And I, that's how I would make the decision if it's purely financial. Does the scheduled maintenance for my vehicle 
uh, get increased to such a point that the cost offsets. And if that's the case, it's worth it every single time because you're out the same amount of money per year and you have to be inconvenienced less frequently. I got one more. It's complicated. I'm going to make it short, and we're done for the day. Here's my question. My question is, how do you think Google's um, decision to step up their encoding and um, their encoding practices and, for lack of a better word, to kind of fight the NSA on dragnet surveillance, how do you think that uh, that decision will translate kind of downstream to smaller businesses, smaller electronic programs, um, smaller services who are basically pissed off about this. Second part of the question is, um, we keep hearing about cyber terrorism, cyber terrorism, cyber terrorism. But according to the Washington Post, the NSA is um, influencing encryption standards to make them more vulnerable to outside attack, according to reports Thursday by the New York Times, The Guardian, and the ProPublica, based on documents provided by former NSA contractor Edward Snowden. Uh my question, I guess, is, you know, one, how is, um, what do you think of smaller companies and, and basically publicly owned companies and such are, are going to follow this lead and try and make it a little bit more harder, a little bit more difficult for the NSA to, to keep spying on us? And second question is, if we're so concerned about cyber terrorism, why are we breaking encryption standards down so that anybody can get into them. Thank you. First, let me say, I think Google is a big, fat liar. I don't think that anything they're doing has anything to do with keeping the NSA from spying on what you're doing because they are voluntary, good-standing members of the prison program that make the information available to the NSA upon request. So it's not like the NSA just needs to be snooping about what you're doing as your stuff passes around the way Google makes it sound. Google will just give them all the information they ask for. So what they're doing is paint on a pig. So it means nothing. How does it translate down to smaller people? It doesn't. It doesn't. The reality is if you're on the Internet today, unless you're taking specific protocols individually, like using VPNs and other things like that, you're being monitored by the NSA, and it doesn't matter what Google does and any encryption Google does, the NSA has access to, because Google will give it to them. They're liars that they even give a shit about this. And I invite you to look up the PRISM program and see that. Now, we're worried about cyber terrorism, but the NSA is wanting to make encryption easier to break for them, not for the terrorists. And here's what I mean. They don't care if the terrorist finds out that you are, uh, I don't know, against your government's policies. That's the kind of place they want the encryption made easier to break. But they'll, they want very tough encryption to keep the terrorists, cyber terrorists, you and anybody else out of their business and places where they should have it. Like, yeah, they're not trying to make it easier to break encryption that would get you into the networks inside a power plant and shut the power plant down. They want the encryption to be easier at the consumer's level, at the things that the terrorist really isn't trying to get to, right? And how many terrorists are there? I think there's 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 more probability of you being eaten by a shark if you swim in the ocean a few times a year than there is of being killed by Ahmed, a dead terrorist. 
I think the terrorist threat is overplayed, not non-existent, but overplayed to make you scared so you'll do what the government says you have to do. Yeah, we need to monitor grandma's cell phone because some guy in a cave might be talking to Come on. Let's use our brains. They're full of crap, and there isn't anything that anybody is going to do right now at the size of Google that's going to matter. The reality is, if you want some level of anonymity online, then you need to take some extraordinary measures on your own to get it done. And it's up to you whether you want to do that or not. I can tell you that no one has ever asked me for information on any of my subscribers or listeners or anything like that. That's that's never happened here, and I don't think they're looking at that level because most people have a Yahoo account. Most people have a Google account. Most people have a Facebook account, a Twitter account. Most people use a major ISP. Most people use a cell phone. When you're trying to get data in the volume these guys are, you're not going to mess around with mom-and-pop websites. Right? They can see what you're doing on my site because you're logged into your Google account. And Google's encryption, again, won't do diddly check crap to change that. So this is what I think we need to be doing. We need to be continuing to pressure the government. Why are you doing this in the first place? And we need to not be afraid. Say who we are and what we are and keep, as I said earlier this week, sounding the message that there are certain things the government doesn't need to be doing And telling people what the government is doing. So when it happens, it will be recognized. And I don't want to go into that rant again, so I'm going to leave it there. But again, Google about encrypting it to protect your security from the NSA. Liar, liar, pants on fire. Remember the old kids thing? Google is full of crap. Google is sitting right in bed with this government. And anybody that doesn't believe that is just in pure denial. And so is every major internet-based tech company out there. So is Microsoft and Bing. So is Yahoo. All these people are. And anything that paints the image that they're not is just that paint on a pig. So instead of worrying about the fact that they might know that you think they're a bunch of screw-ups, Stop worrying about the fact that they know that and tell them directly so they don't have to find out by monitoring your tweets. Because if we're going to make it in America, we've got to get into that fire ant attitude that in, I think it was Insidious talked about on the blog. I think it was Insidious. If it wasn't Insidious, I apologize to whoever it was. Basically said fire ants, they build their nest with wanton disregard for anything that you want right in the middle of your yard. They just That's where I'm going to live. And if you mess with it, they jack your ass up. You want to you solve this problem with our government? Then you go fire ant on that ass. We need to start saying, Where, you want to monitor it? Here, I'll tell you what. Here you go, right here. You guys are a bunch of screw-ups. You're pissing away our future, and we're sick and tired of it. There, you don't need to monitor my tweets anymore. You got it? Because that's when they become afraid. That's when they become intimidated. That's when they become scared. When you're out tweeting it, but you don't want them to know you did it, that's when they feel emboldened, that's when they feel empowered, and that's when tyranny rises. You want to fight tyranny? Do it publicly. Do it every day. Never back down. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Time.
Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Revolution is you.